Well, we turn now to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 2. We've been making our way lately through this Gospel record, Matthew's Gospel account. Last week, we focused our attention on the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, the visit of the Magi, a story that has such a remarkable beginning. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And so we saw how Herod reacted to that, inquiring about location, 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 and inquiring about timing too. So a remarkable beginning to that episode, and then a happy ending mostly. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And then this, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So there's something thrilling and glorious about them finding the child and honoring the child, and yet there is something ominous about the warning they get and the fact that they've got to go home a different way. So that's where we left off last week. That brings us to where we pick up this week at verse 13. And I'll read down through to the end of the chapter. So picking up at verse 13, hear now the word of God. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow before you and we thank you for your word. 
We come to this ancient writing believing that, that this is your word and by it you address us today as your children. Thank you that you've given us ears to hear. And because you have, we say, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There are a number of passages in the Bible that are difficult to read, and that for a number of different reasons. This is not an easy passage to read, not because there are Bible names in here that are especially difficult to pronounce. In that respect, it's not too bad. Not because there are Bible doctrines here that are particularly perplexing, as we find elsewhere in Scripture. But this one's hard to read in the sense that when you read this passage, right in the middle of it, you have to gaze on the face of evil. In this passage, you've got to read about an act that is uncomfortable to say the least, to contemplate what Herod did in his fury. The good news is that there's more to this passage than that. So yes, it's true. Evil is real, and it's here. And we're going to have to face that today. But it's also true that God is ruling. God is even fulfilling his purposes. And today we're going to see that as well. And we're going to rest in that. Human evil will not prevail. You might say that this passage tells us a tale of three kings. And no, I'm not talking about the wise men. We three kings. I'm not even sure how many of them there were, the magi. But we do know that there are three kings in this passage. Herod's a king. The child Jesus is a king. And God is king over the universe. And king number three protects king number two from king number one. God protects Jesus from Herod. We're going to see all of that here. So let's take a look at what we find here. And I'll tell you right now, we're going to mine the riches of this passage by noticing three points, three truths that are to be found here. And I just hinted at them. The first of them is evil is real. And we're reminded of that here. We're taught that here. That's our first. Evil is real. Take a look at verse 16. Verse 16. Matthew recounts. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Talked about this a little bit last week, who this Herod is that's mentioned here. The one who's nicknamed in history Herod the Great who wasn't truly great, who was truly despicable. 
As I was saying last week, this was a man who had one of his wives and several of his own children executed because he came to the conclusion that they posed a threat to his power. And it wasn't just family members. He, he treated a lot of other people the same way, brought them to the same end. This was a man who was ruthless in eliminating anyone who seemed to pose a threat to his power. And that's what he's trying to pull off here. The, the Herod that we meet here is prideful and irrational and murderous. I say prideful because he's completely absorbed with himself and his own power. I say irrational because he actually believes that he has, he has it within him to preserve his own power come what may. But God laughs at him with that divine laughter from Psalm 2. Irrational. And I say murderous because he's willing to have these children killed in order to preserve his own power. And you see, not just in Bethlehem, but in that whole region, he does this. So that's Herod, so-called Herod the Great. After his death, as we're told here, it was his son Archelaus who succeeded him. That's who's referred to in verse 22. Look at verse 22. When he, that is Joseph, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now, we don't have the same extensive catalog of blood-chilling stories about Archelaus as we do about his father. But he was a cruel figure. He was a despised figure. Eventually, even the Romans had enough of him, which is saying a lot, and, and removed him from power in 6 AD. In any case, it's clear from what we've got here in Matthew 2, Archelaus was bad enough to be feared, to be avoided, And Joseph did fear him. And so Joseph, with his family, did avoid him. Evil is real. That's the first of our three points. It's here. And we can't shrink back from it. But then here's our second point. Yes, evil is real, but here's our second. God is ruling. And the reality of the evil that we encounter here doesn't contradict The sweet Bible truth, the majestic Bible revelation that God is ruling. And here, just back up to verse 13, where where the passage begins. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This is God ruling. In particular, this is God ruling in such a way as to protect his own. Here God is ruling in order to protect. And so, Joseph is told, go to Egypt. Now, fleeing to Egypt, it's likely that Egypt would have made some sense to Joseph as a destination to flee to 
in a moment of fear. It wasn't all that far away, just looking at it on the map. And there was a rather large population of Jews in Egypt. There had been for centuries. There was even something of a well-established tradition of Jews finding refuge in Egypt in the past. And you get glimpses of that in Scripture. So, on one level, it's a destination that makes some sense, given the threat that Herod poses. Still, you can't help but be amazed at what this man's life has become. Can't help but wonder what must have been going through Joseph's mind. Here's a man who, all that not, not all that long ago, was literally an ordinary Joe. Betrothed to be married? We reflected upon this a few weeks back. Probably had the same sorts of desires and expectations and hopes and fears as any man about to be married. Before you know it, his life is visits from angels. A miraculous child, a child who is Savior and Emmanuel, and now it's international escape so that the child won't be put to death by the king. You talk about God moves in a mysterious way. In any case, the main thing here isn't what Joseph was going through, what Joseph was thinking. It's what God was doing. God was ruling so as to protect to protect the life of his incarnate son. And it's not just there. Later, as we've already seen, God rules so as to protect him again when they leave Egypt and come home. Look at verse 19. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So even after they got back to Israel, God is still ruling, still ruling so as to protect his own. The point is this, if God wants to preserve a life, he will surely preserve it. No matter how fierce, no matter how determined the human evil that would destroy that life brings to mind Pharaoh. The beginning of the book of Exodus, Pharaoh was determined to wipe out this people that he believed posed a threat to him and his power. But God was ruling so as to protect his people in Egypt. And not only did he protect them, but in spite of all of Pharaoh's efforts, he granted his people to flourish and abound. If God wants to preserve a life, he surely will preserve it. And there is no evil, whether human, demonic, satanic, there is no evil that can snatch the life that God intends to preserve. So yes, evil is real. That was our first. But also this, God is ruling. That's our second. And that brings us then to our third of three points. Which is that God is fulfilling. 
God is fulfilling his own purposes as he rules. He's not acting randomly. He's not acting arbitrarily. No, God has his own aims in view and he is bringing them about as he rules. And that's reflected in the fact that over and over again, three times in this passage, you have Matthew pointing out that what happened in Jesus' life, what happened in Jesus' early days, was in fulfillment of what God had spoken long ago. Three times you have that here. The first of them, in verse 15, referring to God Sending Joseph and his family for a time to Egypt. What does it say in verse 15? It says this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is why we turn to the book of Hosea earlier in our service. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1. God says when Israel was a child I loved him. In out of Egypt, I called my son. Hosea 11, verse 1. Now, in its original context, when you flip back to Hosea, that's referring to the calling of Israel as a nation out of Egypt at the time of the Exodus. In its original context, in Hosea, it's not really a prediction about something that's going to happen later. And so the question is, How is that fulfilled in this? How is it that what Hosea said, looking back upon the Exodus, how is it that that was fulfilled in the life story of Jesus in his early days recounted in Matthew? Well, we just need to think again about the very idea of fulfillment. Because it's a big, rich, beautiful concept in the Bible. The Old Testament doesn't just give us specific predictions about the Messiah here and there. It does give us some of those, but it gives us more. The Old Testament gives us a whole dramatic unfolding storyline that is the history of Israel in the Old Testament. And eventually, their expectation as the people of God, their expectation became That one day, one would come who would live out that story personally and bring it to fruition. One who would personally represent the people of Israel. Represent them in the sense of being what they were supposed to be, holiness. But also represent them in the sense of standing for them in order to take away their sins, atonement. And Jesus is that one. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, not just by satisfying these discrete predictions that you find in a few verses, though he does, but also by embodying and and completing Israel's whole storyline. So we're reminded here, when Matthew points us back to Hosea, that God is fulfilling There's a pattern here, a pattern anticipated in the mind of God, reflected then in the ancient writings of God, so that what once took place in the history of the whole people is now fully and finally taking place in the life of this one person who is their Messiah.
So that's the first of them. Out of Egypt I called my son. Here's the second of them. The second of these fulfillment statements. And yes, this one is referring to Herod's dreadful act of evil. Having all of those children killed. Even in this case, Matthew points us back. And he points us back to Jeremiah 31. Because Matthew says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So there's Matthew pointing us back to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. And, and just like we did with Hosea, here with Jeremiah, we, we go back in time to Jeremiah's day, to the writing of those words and what they would have meant in Jeremiah's day. In its original context, what Jeremiah is describing there is the sorrow of the people of God as they're taken off into exile, the hands of the Babylonians. So again, we can say, when when we flip back, in its original context, it's not really meant to be a prediction of something that's going to happen later. So we can ask the same question. How is that fulfilled in this? How is it that what Jeremiah refers to is fulfilled in what Matthew recounts about about the early days of Jesus? Well, certainly there's the similarity between Jeremiah and Matthew. There's the similarity of the experience of the sorrow itself. In both cases, a deep, And devastating sense of loss. In the first case, the sorrow of the exile. In this latter case, the sorrow of this massacre. And there may also be this. In Jeremiah 31, it's clear that that sorrow, the sorrow of the exile, is one day going to give way. To the joy of restoration and salvation. And maybe Matthew's pointing us to that as well. Yes, deep sorrow. But deep sorrow in God's mysterious purposes on the very threshold of salvation. Jeremiah 31. So that's the second of these fulfillment statements. And then there's one more. And I put all of these in your bulletin. The three fulfillment statements. This one refers to Joseph leading his family to live in Nazareth. This is the last verse in our passage today. Verse 23, he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Luke tells us, Luke tells us that Nazareth is where Joseph and Mary started out, and so this must have made sense as a place for them eventually to go back to. And not only did it make sense to them, but as Matthew was pointing out, it made for another fulfillment of Scripture. But this one's different than the other two. This one's not like the others. The first one was clearly a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1. The second one was clearly a reference to Jeremiah 31, verse 15. This third one isn't clearly a fulfillment of anything. 
He shall be called a Nazarene or he shall be known as a Nazarene. You will search in vain in the whole of the Old Testament for any statement like that. And so one more time we can ask the question, how is this a fulfillment? What is it a fulfillment of? Thinking about the Old Testament. Well, there are several theories, as you might imagine, about that. It has been pointed out that Matthew here with this third one, he doesn't point to one particular verse. He refers to the prophets. So he he seems to have in view something bigger than just one verse. He refers to the prophets. He seems to have in view the testimony of the prophets as a whole as they pointed God's people forward to the one who would be their savior. And he doesn't have the word saying introducing the statement. One of the most plausible theories is that Matthew's referring to the fact that the Old Testament as a whole predicted a Messiah who would be obscure, even looked down upon. Right? This isn't one who's going to come into the world ablaze with glory so that it's obvious that he's the savior of the people. No. He's not going to come into the world like that. And the Old Testament as a whole pointed God's people forward to a day when one would come like that. And sure enough, there's evidence in the New Testament that being from Nazareth of all places meant being obscure and looked down upon. And I'm talking about John chapter 1. John chapter 1, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael replied, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. I love that answer that Philip gives. Nathanael says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip says in effect, Don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge this one by the town that he's from. Come and see. So it may be that that's what Matthew's referring to here. When he talks about how Jesus being from Nazareth is a fulfillment of what the Old Testament had said. In any case, the main point is clear. Not once, not twice, three times in this passage. Matthew claims that these events in the life of Jesus were in fulfillment of what had been written. And so the lesson, the lesson for us is clear. None of those events, none of our own events, are somehow beyond the scope of the divine plan. God is fulfilling Bringing his purposes to pass. And it's all the more remarkable when you stop and think about each of these three events as marking the early life of the Messiah. Think about each of these three fulfillment moments. Number one, the Messiah is hounded out of his own country. Number two, children are slain. And number three, the Messiah is hidden away. The Messiah is hounded. Here's the true king of the Jews. Savior, Emmanuel, Christ, ruler, shepherd, all of the things that we've learned about him already. 
And he and his family are on the run, hounded out of their own country by a king like Herod, who was not great. And then the second one, children are slain. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds? I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. It doesn't appear to have started out that way. It doesn't appear to have been good news at all for the mothers of Bethlehem. And that whole region. And then the third one. The Messiah is hidden. Yes, he was born in Bethlehem. Which had a certain glory about it. Thanks to the prophecy in Micah. That the Christ would come from there. But now he's known as coming from Nazareth. Which apparently didn't have glory in the eyes of the people at all. And so in each case. He's hounded. Children slain. He's hidden away. You're tempted to say, this isn't the way it was supposed to be. He ought to have come in unmistakable glory. And he ought to have left life and joy in his wake everywhere he went. And every knee should have bowed before him. Instead, it's misery and massacre and shame. But God, even in these episodes, was fulfilling his purposes. John Calvin puts it this way. Here's Calvin reflecting upon this point as illustrated in this very passage. Calvin writes this, quote, We are here taught that God has more than one way of preserving his own people. Sometimes he makes astonishing displays of his power, while at other times he employs dark coverings or shadows from which feeble rays escape. This wonderful method of preserving the Son of God under the cross teaches us that they act improperly who prescribe to God a fixed plan of action. Let us permit him. I love that. That phrase by Calvin. Let us permit God to advance our salvation by his own diversity of methods. That he may appear at his own time as the savior of Judea. He is compelled to flee from it and is nourished by Egypt from which nothing but what is destructive to the church of God had ever proceeded. Who would not have regarded with amazement? Who would not have regarded with an amazement such an unexpected work of God? End quote. See, you read this story and there's a proper sense of amazement that we feel as we see God fulfilling his purposes, even in events like these three. That's what's to be found here, friends. Evil is real. God is ruling. God is fulfilling. And each one of those three points, we ought to take personally. Each of those three points touches down in your own life today. First of all, the truth that evil is real. That isn't just what Herod was like 2,000 years ago. Prideful, irrational, murderous, Now, we can say that that's what sin is like in its very character. 
Sin is prideful, irrational, in its own way, murderous. And it was like that from the beginning in the fall, and sin is like that to this day. Romans 1, Paul looks out at the human race apart from divine grace, right? Apart from any divine power, redeeming and renewing, Paul looks out on the landscape of the human race and pulls no punches in describing what he sees. Romans 1. Paul says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That is the character of sin. And it's all in there. Prideful, because Paul says haughty and boastful. And irrational, people are willing to go this way even though they know it leads to death. And murderous, because Paul says that people are willing to approve others living the same way even though they know it leads to death. The human race, left to itself, is a race of Herod's. In terms of degree, it's not true that everyone's as bad as Herod. But in terms of disposition, it is true that apart from grace, everyone's heart is bent away from God. Evil is real. We're prone to downplay it, even deny it. We're tempted to say that, well, people just make mistakes. People have just lost their way, and and we try to couch it in these benign terms. Or people just get caught up with the wrong crowd. They get caught up with a crowd of fellow mistake makers. As if there were more, nothing more to the human condition than that. But then every once in a while something happens. Something like 9-11 happens. It's very hard in the face of something like 9-11 to say, well that was just a mistake. They were just confused. Those were folks who just got caught up with the wrong crowd. In a moment like that, people are more willing to use the E word and call it evil. But then what happens? Time passes, memories fade, and before too long we're back to mistakes and confusion and bad influences and nothing more. Which is why it's so important for us constantly to be reminded by the word of God, reminded of the truth of the human condition. Since the fall, the human condition at root is not mere mistakenness. It's evil. Man's heart is bad. And it's only as a result of sin that's like that. That man is mistaken and confused and badly influenced and all the rest. It's not to deny that yes, man makes mistakes and gets confused and gets caught up with the wrong crowd. It's simply to affirm that there's more to it than that. That there's something underlying all of that, which is that man is turned away from God and he shows it more or less. And this is tough for us, but as the church, as Christians, we've got to be willing to bear witness in the world to the fact that that's true. And then to take it even more personally, you you ought to bear in mind that this is true of your own sin. 
Now, as a believer, you're not under the reign of sin as you once were. Thank God for that. Those shackles have been broken. We've been made new. We've been brought to life. But still, even the sin that remains in your life is an enemy of this character, of a Herod-like character. Because sin, in its essence, is prideful and irrational and murderous and more. And you can use that. You can use even an awful episode like this in Scripture to get your attention and to remind you of the character of sin, including your own, though you have been redeemed from it. Evil is real. The second one, God is ruling. Friends, let's take that one to heart as well. God is ruling so as to protect What does that one mean for us? Well, it means these two things. One, we will live on this earth just as many days as God intends for us to live, no more, no fewer. You can bank on that. Remember in Psalm 90, Moses prayed, teach us to number our days. Obviously, we cannot number them in the sense of knowing precisely how many days God intends for us. But that's just it. We will live just as many days as he intends. And he who intends it is our good and wise and faithful God. So this is a truth to rest in. About the days that we live out here. And then this second one too. This is a truth to hold on to when we contemplate reaching our final day here on earth. When we die. Even then, even in death as believers, God will be ruling, ruling so as to protect us who have trusted in Christ. Death will be our entrance into glory. As believers, we will not finally be undone in the experience of physical death. To the contrary, we'll be preserved through it and brought home. Jesus said, I give them eternal life and they will never perish And no one will snatch them out of my hand. When we die, it's as if death, the last enemy, will step forward to claim us forever. But Jesus will step in and say, hands off, he's mine. She's mine. If God wants to preserve a life, he will surely preserve it. And that includes... Our eternal life. And he will keep us forever. God is ruling so as to protect his own. And he will to the end. And then the third one. God is fulfilling. Friends, grasp this when it comes to the whole sweep of human history. It's as if over the whole of history... A banner has been raised. And we've got the eyes to see it and read it. And what that banner says is, all this took place in order to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through his prophets and apostles. Imagine that over the whole of history. All this took place in order to fulfill The word of the Lord. 
If you're a Christian, you see the banner. You can read those words because your gaze has been lifted to God and his word. If you're a Christian, you have in your hand or in your eyes as you gaze upon the banner, the key that unlocks the meaning of history. How about that? It's not to say that you can sort out all of the details of history. We've got to be humble enough to admit that we cannot. But it is to say that you know the big picture. And the big picture is everything. That God is guiding all of history to end in his own glory, in the completion of the redemption of his people, and in the manifestation of his justice in the case of those who are not. And you can rest in the fact that he's doing that, that he's fulfilling, even when you cannot possibly understand now how that is the case. So I say grasp this when it comes to the grand sweep of human history. But then I also say grasp this when it comes to the contours of your own life, including today. In your own life, to borrow Calvin's words, and here I want to challenge you. Be honest. Are you prescribing to God a fixed plan of action? In other words, are you telling God that there's only one way of preserving his own people, preserving you, and you know what it is? In the midst of trial, sorrow, confusion, the temptation is acute to do just that. To prescribe to God the plan of action that you have fixed for your life. Perhaps even instructing God as to where he's gone wrong. And correcting God as to how he can repent and get you back on cord. I know it's jarring even to put it that way. But again, we're, we're confronting the character of sin. And our own pride. So we need to grasp this. God is fulfilling. That's the banner over your own life. However many days God gives you to live this life. With all of its strange turns and deep sorrows, the banner is, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had decreed for his beloved child. All this took place so that he might bring his beloved child home. Christian, he is bringing you home. And at every turn, you can keep coming back to Christ To be reminded of that. The pattern of Israel in the Old Testament was being lived out by Jesus. Well, now the pattern of Jesus is being lived out by you. Jesus, who went down into suffering in order to be raised to glory. The pattern of Jesus was this. His Father in heaven was watching over him and ruling and protecting and fulfilling. And now that pattern, that storyline is being lived out by you. Your Father in heaven is watching over you and ruling and protecting and fulfilling his purposes for you by name. Keep coming back to Christ. Trace his pattern. Read his storyline. You can almost imagine tracing it as with one of your fingers. As you read about Israel in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New, trace his pattern, read his storyline, because now it's yours. He's the Christ, you are the Christian. You're the Christian. 
And just as surely as his father ruled and protected and fulfilled in his life, your father is going to do the same, is right now doing the same in yours. And that we can rest in. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that this is true. We confess that we tremble at the revelation of evil, not only portrayed in Scripture, but then on display in the world around us. And then we look at our own hearts and see what our own sin is like, though we are the redeemed. We tremble. But then we rest in this. Father, you are sovereign. You rule. You reign. And then we rest in this as well, that you rule, you reign, so as to bring your own purposes to fulfillment. And your purpose is to redeem us to the uttermost. And to finish the good work that you have begun in us and for us. You are making all things new. We pray that you would help us to take these things to heart and rise up and live like it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.